Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today we've brought on Jeremiah Boucher as our guest, and he's a value investor and the founder of Patriot Holdings LLC, where he specializes in the acquisition and development of alternative commercial real estate assets over the last 20 years. So I'm super excited to have him come on the show today, share a little bit about his background, his journey, what he's doing in real estate today. So Jeremiah, welcome to the show and how are you doing? Good. Hey, Eileen. Good, good. I'm ready so, to go. All right, Jeremiah. So let's start off. If you can share with us a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this has been pretty much my profession my whole life. Uh, I quit college. I, I went to UNLV. Um, my office is based here in Vegas. I, uh, <laughs> I read some cheesy course about how to buy real estate with no money down from Carlton Sheets. I found it in my dad's attic. And uh, my family doesn't come from wealth or real estate or any, any of that background. But he oh, had the Carlton sheets. <laughs> the Carlton oh, yeah. sheets. <laughs> my dad bought the infomercial. Yeah, he has a paving business, you know. So, and my grandfather had a uh, a florist shop. So they were always entrepreneurs, but they never really made the jump into real estate through fear. I think they just held off, and that was in the Boston area. And now those properties went up probably ten times since you know they were looking at it. But I was excited about it because I I was re- didn't have a path and. I was trying to figure out where to go in college, and it really resonated with me that I can be creative, that I can, through relationships, build a business that actually has assets and, and sustainable long-term wealth like we all want in, in real estate. And then the big kicker was you know, Robert Kiyosaki's book, like the Bible for all of us, you know, where it, it just smacked me in the face. Like I, I got to work to learn, not to earn, and then grow my own portfolio, do something and build something for myself like my father did. And his business. So, so yeah, that was a that was a tough path though because I got sucked into the whole house flipping game in in oh three oh four oh five oh six and in Vegas it's uh, the the gambling mentality where you just keep doubling down. Well, it you know I finally figured out that that model doesn't work because everybody was doing it and there was really no competitive advantage. So I got I got crushed in the oh seven oh eight crash. You know, got some foreclosures, like wiped out and had to rebuild. And during that time, I really figured out that I don't want to be in that game anyway. I, I, don't, I became a realtor in the process just to learn how to be an investor and the different documents involved in the process. But then I said, you know, I, I don't like this. I don't, every, like every valet guy in Vegas was a, a realtor, you know, every cocktail waitress. So I'm like, this, is, this can't be sustainable. And the house slipping thing, you know, it, was, it eventually just obviously collapsed. Everyone knows. So I really at that time decided I got to get into commercial real estate. That's the only path of progress. Like I don't see, for me personally, scaling in residential. And I had big dreams for myself. So I decided, what can I get into now where I have no credit? I have really no experience. I have no money. I'm really in a tough spot. What can I do to get into commercial real estate? And once again, I bought another course you know, online and I saw manufactured housing or mobile home park investing on this old website, the mobile home park store. And that really got me excited where I, I said, huh, you know, that right now it's not a very sexy asset class and 
there's cash flow available and there's uh, it, the land lease community model makes sense to me where I'm not, I can manage it from afar and I'm not fixing up houses and toilets and all these things where we're leasing pads to people at affordable rates so they have affordable housing. So I went all in to, you know, I burned the boats, right? I quit being a realtor. I quit everything I was doing and just went into mobile home park investing, but without any money, that was a challenge. So I called the guys that wrote the course. His name was Dave Reynolds at the time. And I said, Dave, what can I do to get in the business? You know, how can I work with you? And he's like, well, go find deals. You got to go add value. You know, so, so I bought a list and I cold called for a decade and I went all over the country and met old folks in Texas and in Iowa and Minnesota. And there's a tons of stories around that, but I really started to learn, okay, what is a good asset? What's a bad asset? What are, what are some things that are where I can create value or where, where can I get crushed in terms of just long-term capital expenditures? So after all of that, I realized this is a great business. And I continued to work with those guys for a decade. And I took all my fees. I I made some decent money for being a young kid in my 20s, but I put it all back into the business. And then when we swapped, we did an equity swap where I was able to take all that equity I earned with them and all the fees, and I was able to swap it and buy my own assets. And finally, you know, over a decade later, get uh, without still with just getting my credit repaired and everything else, I was able to get my own portfolio going. And then I could build my own management company and my own private equity firm. So that was, that was a heck of a process because for a decade, I was uh, subjected to you know, finding creative financing deals or tying them up and working with my partners there and having to assign the deals to them. And I wasn't really the controller of my destiny, but then I, it, was all, it was worth it. Over time, I finally was able to build up my own portfolio. But I think that the main lesson was if you don't have money and if you don't have credit, if you don't have experience, you've got to go figure out a way to add value first. Before you say, you know, I'm going to be a big real estate investor and, and just go into it blindly. Wow. <laughs> there is a lot to unpack there, Jeremiah. There's a lot of background in there. And this is all during your 20s that you were that you were trying to figure out your path, that you were looking at ways to get involved in real estate, build up your career for it. You did flipping, didn't like that as well, didn't do so well, it sounded like, but still stuck to real estate decided to move into commercial, found mobile home parks. And is that where your focus is now is in mobile home parks? Yeah. So it's evolving always. So my, I wrote a book and this was during COVID and it's called Finding Your Edge. It's uh, how to win at the game of commercial real estate. And why I did that was just to take all my thoughts over the last 20 years and put them out there. And what I realized is as a nimble small business owner, like most of us are here or, or, invest, or investors that are smaller, if you don't have an edge in the marketplace, then you're competing against people that are a lot sharper, a lot, a lot more well capitalized, have a lot more experience. And that's very challenging to get a return or to be successful. So the edge that I had was that I had to find asset classes or find regions in the, the country where there was still undervalued assets or it wasn't overvalued. I wasn't at the peak or at the end of the cycle. So the last three, four, well, I've been in it six, six, seven years, but the last three or four years really focusing on transitioning to self-storage and just small bay warehouse where manufactured housing is a great asset class. But I don't know, some of your listeners, the asset class, the trajectory of the values have gone through the roof where they're trading almost at B or A class apartment cap rates, you know, in the fours and low fives. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's very challenging to scale that business with the amount of management it takes. So for me, I started deciding I'm not just going to buy for the sake of buying. 
I still follow my core principles. You had there has to be value on the buy. When you buy, you can't make it and hope that it's gonna you know, make you make money at the end of the exit or the uh, the investment. So I thought storage was a great asset class, and luckily the trends with COVID and how COVID affected people moving out of urban markets and going into suburban and tertiary markets and living there. And that created so much interest. The self-storage industry over the last two years, even on the public REIT side, you know, in their earnings reports, the revenue growth has been 30, 35%, you know, which is unheard of in any other asset class. And then we're getting a lot of institutional investors, large funds, Blackstone and Apollo and all all these big private equity firms that are going into the space and buying up portfolios so that it's been a great ride because, uh, you know, it just did like once again, I was a little ahead of the curve and I found how to get into these assets before it was quite inflated. Now, there's still opportunity there, but but yeah, I had to pivot into development and do some other things, but we can keep going. I can share more later. So when you say, you know, with your book that you wrote, Finding the Edge, like how did you find that that was what you were good with? Like, how did you determine that that was your edge and that was what was going to set you apart from everybody else? Because people can put the time in, they can hustle, they can try to look for the off-market deals, they could try to add value where they can, but what sets them apart? Like, and what, like, how did you know that that was going to set you apart? Yeah. One, I had to get educated and figure out what are my strengths? Like, what, what are the things that I'm good at? And what I was in my early 20s, I, I have a lot of energy. I still have a lot of energy. So mine was, you know, I have to get out there and I have to talk to a lot of people and I have to understand this asset class and I have to understand where there might be value where other people aren't realizing it. And in these mobile home parks and self-storage facilities, in every asset class, there is this where they're just not maximizing the business. So first I had to see, you know, an example is they in storage, they're not leasing online. You know, they're not paving their roads. It's it's muddy, it's dirty, it's dingy. I mean, it's a traditional value add for like a house flip where you're making these improvements, but it improves the business. You can raise your revenues. So first I had to identify a niche in there. And that's why my niche changed over time. But what I also had to figure out in the beginning, the only value I could contribute to the transaction, because I didn't have capital and I didn't have experience, it was the relationship. So for me, it was a decade of building these relationships over time. And, and when I would visit my family, I live in Vegas now, but I would go back and visit my parents in the Northeast and I would be driving all over upstate New York or almost damn near to Canada, you know, just meeting all these different owners and asking them, how do you like the business? Would you ever consider selling? Are you staying full, you know, uh, and trying to add value where I could. And over time, that compounded, but it took a long time because, you know, when they first met me, it was, look at this young kid that you know, probably doesn't have any money, or I don't know that what they thought about me, but I look like I was like 13, you know, at 25. So I had to you know, be persistent. And that was in the book as well. So I was just consistently persistent and positive and made that connection where they felt, okay, well, this kid, you know, he's not going away and he knows what he's talking about. And then that way I was, you know, I got a lot of opportunities before other people did because some people just don't want to deal with listing it or a broker or those things. So, you know, I mean, it sounds, it's not like a magic pill, but the off-market deal and building that relationship and trust with those sellers and the brokers and eventually the banks there, I mean, it all started to compound, but it took one step at a time where I had to, I had to be very personable and I had to get out and make a lot of contacts. It was a long road to, because you get a tons of no's as people know out there that are in sales. Yeah. No, I think also one of the things that you had mentioned was, you know, you were really putting yourself out there 
And one of the things that's kind of stuck out to me was when you said you found Dave Reynolds and you'd found his number and you'd given him a call (laughs) and you're just like, what can I do to help you out? A lot of people wouldn't take that action, that first action to first of all, have the guts to, to call someone like that and just ask like, how can I add value to you? For you, what drove you to that? And like, what helped you to persist into wanting to add value to that specific person and add value to them to see how you can get involved and try to follow this trajectory and build up your path in your education space like through this one person? Yeah, I just really felt like the education and content that he created, and this was in 06 and 07, so you know, it's pretty pretty somewhat new on the internet where it was it there wasn't a lot out there and it was clear. It was very clear about this is what you need to do. It's very simple. And I just felt, honestly, I didn't have any options. <laughs> I didn't know where else to go. So I, 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 you know, I couldn't go to my parents and I was struggling. So I had to, I just was doing whatever it took at the time. And those other avenues of brokerage and trying to get into retail. And I did some other small investments, gas stations and things uh, after, but I really realized that it's a great business model. And then after we worked together and he, he would show me some things that he noticed I was committed in the beginning. It was just read the material, go out there and go find something. But I was emailing him, you know, five, six, seven deals a week. And, and he would give me feedback and he noticed I was committed. And then we started to have a rapport and he started to somewhat mentor me in a, in a way. And then also, you know, we just had good trust. Like every time it was always basically a handshake agreement where everything he said, he did everything I said I did. So To me, it was like, why go out there and try to find a lot of other people I can work with or partner with or sell to when I just know this guy's fair and I can grow. And and that helped me scale really fast. Right. We did uh, 90, almost 100 transactions together, and they were the top five or six mobile home park funds in the country. And I think still there. That's incredible. I <laughs> I don't I don't even know like how that first phone call went when you introduced yourself. Like, could you share a little bit? Like, what did you say when you first made that phone call? Oh, oh he's a dry guy. He's an accountant. <laughs> so he he is so he's like I'm a big Patriots fan from so he sounds like Bill Belichick. I mean, he is like so a matter of fact. So I couldn't read anything. It was it was like, find me a deal. That sounds good. <laughs> you know, I was so I was so worried. I was like, is this guy pissed off or is he not? So but no, that's just his personality. So it was it was more of uh, just getting familiar over time mm-hmm. with him. But at the end of the day, that call and all the calls I made after that to all the different people, I just had to, I don't know, this is you know more like the Tony Robbins side of it all, where you frame something in your head. So I just framed it like this. I'm like, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not trying to date their daughter. I'm not trying to take <laughs> their asset. You know, all I want to know is, do you ha- want to sell? For, I know this asset class, I can buy it. Do, we want to mm-hmm. buy and for me, and honestly, it took a lot of imagination because I didn't have any money and I didn't have really experience. So I had to, I don't know if it's the fake it till you make it, but I believed it. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm committed to this. I believe it. I have guys I can trust that gave me the confidence that I can do what I say. And it was just me framing it down to very simple. I didn't want to overthink it. Like, mm-hmm. just make the call, see what happens. This is the intent. If they hang up, if they yell at me, it doesn't matter. Call them in six months. And the hardest the people that were the angriest are actually the best. Those are the ones that they would uh, <laughs> respond in the future because no one else would call them over again. And I would just call with a smile. And now we have, a, I have an organization. I have six guys doing that all the time. But in the beginning, that's, the attitude is so critical because you just have that short window to, to actually connect with them. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. 
Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So now you guys focus on creating funds for your investors and everything. How did you decide to go to the fund model versus you know doing one single asset class and and uh, one single property instead of doing the fund? Like, what was the mindset behind that, and how did you guys set up the fund? Yeah, that was a big step for me uh, three or four years ago when we did the fund. So for a decade, when I was uh, going off on my own. The individual syndication where you have a handful of partners, and it was tough to, to start raising money for me. I didn't really, I trusted myself and I wanted to risk my own money. But I, for me, it was an awkward conversation to ask other people for money because that's just my parents aren't like that. And it was another kind of fear that I had to overcome. But as I got into deals that I was experienced with and I was able to get a handful of investors in each partnership, that helped me build up a track record. And, and honestly, that was the only way I knew how to do it, you know, just with the basic operating agreement. And I kind of learned from my accountant and my attorney. And now there's a lot of courses about it. But when I realized that why I transitioned to the fund, Eileen, was I finally had a predictable, scalable business model. And that was when I could say, okay, now, I, and I'm a good steward of the capital and I could, and I have returns, predictable returns. Now, it's very challenging to present each transaction to my group of investors. And over time, it's just, I cannot keep up with it. I mean, we have, you know, 60 some odd employees. So I'm trying to run the organization as I'm presenting each transaction to each investor. And even if I hire a team to, I couldn't scale it. So after I felt like it was, it was warranted as, you know, we're into six, 60 or a hundred or whatever it was transactions. It was time to take something where I had a predictable business model we present, this is the guidelines. This is the model where we're going to do it over and over. We've done it a hundred times before, rinse and repeat. It's the same thing. Okay, now I can take those funds and I can allocate those as I see fit. And then that way, I also I can deliver to my investors where you know, I can give one update on the fund. I can give one set of financials. I can give one set of K-1s. And that way we can deliver rather than overextending myself and trying to have 70 different partnerships with five different partners and trying to juggle all that at once. Are these open-ended funds or closed-ended funds? So, so far, I'm only doing closed. So yeah, there's a, a one to two year fundraising period and then typically a five-year exit. Got it. And then how do you typically structure your funds? And then has it changed over time depending on the investor's appetite, especially how they're looking at things in today's market with you know everything's kind of changing up in the air right now? You know, have you had to look at the way you structure your funds in today's market versus, you know, maybe a couple of years ago? Yeah, it's been an evolution. Like, I'm really interested in as I grow in the industry, I've I've learned quite a bit about the different fund structures, and it's a tricky world. It is a very tricky industry out there where there's ways to present your funds. There's numerous ways where you can make returns look really good. Or you can skew it in a way where it's not that clear to the investors. So, I mean, in the beginning, it was a basic model of 
50-50 split. Uh, you put up the money. I do all the work. I'll get the loan. I guarantee the debt. And I, you get paid back first. And then we split the profits. And that was fine. I did well and everybody made money. But over time, I started getting exposed to institutional or large wealth investors, like private family offices. And these people are like, no, no, that's not how the game works. And I'm like, okay, well, let me see this. Let me understand how the traditional model works. So, and, and I'm not saying you have to do everything completely by the orthodox way. I mean, there's everyone can create any fund structure as long as it's a win-win for everybody. But the evolution that I had is obviously I had to learn, okay, well, how do I align the incentives with me as the sponsor or the GP with the LP? Because I, I don't want to sell something where I don't feel like our incentives are aligned. So the first thing I had to figure out is, okay, what would I invest in? Well, number one, the first question I asked is, how much skin in the game does the guy that I'm investing with, if I were the LP, what does he have at risk here? Because in Vegas, if I, a guy goes and wants to gamble with my money and he takes 20 or 30% of the upside, but he takes no part of the downside, the guy's just going to keep coming back and asking for money. So it's like, you know, the, what's the incentive for him to, to actually win for me? So what I did- I can just I take said, the 20% and go, right? That's it. That's the, and that's the traditional model where they get their 2% on the capital raised and 20% of the upside. And if we lose it all, sorry, guys, we'll start over and raise some more money. And, you know, that's a whole different conversation. But, <laughs> but in, in private equity, my funds, what I decided is I said, okay, we got to do a strong preferred return. So that was traditionally 10%, you know, where it's where people feel like, okay, my money, I get paid back a 10% preferred return or profit before anyone else. And that's annually. Then the next waterfall is I repay their capital. So we don't make any money on a split until we repay the investor's capital on that project. And then now the third tier has been, traditionally it was over that 10%, it would be a 50-50 split. And that still worked out well. And our investors made you know 30% internal rate of returns. Uh, and it was, it's been a great run. But as I scaled up and raised $90 million or more now, I had to start to transition the funds and saying, okay, guys, now I'll, you even, I'll put my money where my mouth is. From the next 10 to 18%, you guys get 70% of the profits. I get 30% of the profits. You get the lion's share. And then anything over that 18% IRR, that average annual return, now we get to split into 50-50. So, so that was kind of something that evolved over time where I first just did a straight split. Then I did a preferred return. Now we have this additional waterfall hurdle to hit an 18% return. And then eventually it gets us to you know, us participating as a 50-50 partner. 10% is, is fantastic for a preferred return, especially in today's market. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I don't think it can continue or last. I mean, it's very hard to get a 10% cash on cash. So we'll see where that goes. But yeah, and we can get into how and all that in the business plan. But yeah, it, it's, it's a tough hurdle. How about now looking forward, because you mentioned that things are a little bit harder also to to find those types of deals. Is your investing strategy and how you're looking at markets and potential acquisitions for your fund and the structure, is that kind of changing going forward now or just because of how everything is playing out in the market in today's environment? Yeah, it is. It's a good question. We filled our first fund. Uh, it was smaller. It's $15 million. Our second fund we're in, involved with now. So that's a value add where we acquire existing assets. And then not only do we just improve it and raise rents, we really try to expand it. So uh, we had to explore or really dive into construction, which we've been doing the last five years. 
and bringing on key partners that I've known for a long time, where a good buddy of mine, he became a, a construction partner and manager. And with storage, it's a nice asset class where it's not that complicated. You buy actually prefabricated steel buildings, metal buildings from factories. So once you have the site laid out and designed, the buildings can actually be built rather quickly, three weeks, four weeks. But that's very hard to get to that point, to get the approvals and all the, uh, all the different permits to get there. But what we did is, to answer your question, is we pivoted to more construction. So, and that's been a crazy ride with the amount of material costs going up with inflation. Uh, we don't use lumber, but we do use steel, and that almost doubled in price over the last 12 months. But the flip side is revenues or rents have gone up by 30, 35%. So that really did still incentivize us to grow and evolve into construction. So our third fund, that is a purely ground up construction fund where we acquire assets or land in areas that we're very familiar with. We have 50 plus facilities and 20 of them we're building now. Uh, self-storage facilities, we kind of know these pockets where it's undersupplied, there's the good demographics uh, for, for self-storage, and I can share what that is. And then we fill those pockets with ground-up construction, but it's a different profile, right? It's three years of minimum where you're, you got to get it built, you got to fill it, then you got to stabilize it with good, you know, 12 months of a good track record. And then you can refinance and pull out the investors' funds and pay them back and give distributions but the incentive, why I made that decision is, one, because the cost basis. I mean, even with steel doubling in price, we can get into these assets at $60, $65, $70 a square foot, $75, including land. But now they're worth $125 to $150 day one, as soon as you're done. And that's not slowing down as a brand new asset that has very low capital expenditures. They're very predictable in terms of each month, you know, they're they continue to generate cash flow and, and they're not sexy. It's not a crazy, it's not like a, a very complicated industry, but it really is for me, it was something where it's predictable and it's safe on the downside where even if we hit a major recession, I feel that the asset class for me is going to be a strong one for the next 20 years. And what I found myself doing in multifamily and in other asset classes is I was constantly reinvesting into the infrastructure. I was constantly turning units and improving the asset which is a good thing and rates continue to go up, but I couldn't predictably just get money out of the asset. You know, one month I would have a $5,000 water leak and an $8,000 road repair and electrical. So the storage for me was after I got into a few of them, I said, wow, you know, once we get this thing built and stabilized and, you know, the roof drains, the water, the, the driveways drain, you know, it looks good. It's very predictable and we can take that check out every single month. And that's what our investors liked as, as well as myself. So with the investors, are they continuing to be optimistic about real estate, self-storage, everything that you're looking to invest in? Are they still optimistic about that? Or is there some hesitation that you're seeing now where people are kind of taking a stance back and they're like, well, let me see how the market shakes out first before we start putting more money into, into real estate? Yeah, that's you know, you must see that in your community, right? Right now is people are wondering, what do I do? What do I do right now? Because there's volatility in the market, crypto doing going where we did and stock market. So we definitely saw people, my feedback and my conversations with my team and investors has been let's preserve our cash right now because there might be opportunity in the future. So fundraising has decreased a bit. But at the same time, you know, right now, a lot of investors are intrigued with this asset class. And there was a, I was at a national conference a few months ago and, and Blackstone was there and the head of the real estate department shared their thesis on the next five years. And he said, 
our thesis on growing our investment portfolio, and they're the biggest, I think, top one or two in the, in the world, private equity fund, they said beds and sheds. They love beds and sheds and they because they like multifamily and they like storage because they're inflationary resistant. They are recession resistant in the sense of you can continue to increase your rents and you know storage. It's month to month when you can adapt your pricing, the dynamic pricing. So that was something that for us, we're seeing a lot of new investors coming from different asset classes that want to try it out. They want to they want to get a, a, their toe in there and see, okay, what is storage like? And this seems like it could be a good, solid, long-term asset. Awesome. No, thank you for sharing all that, Jeremiah. So for you, you've had a long career so far in real estate. You've seen the cycles turns. You've had some challenges that you had to face early on in your career. You're building it up now. You're doing fantastic with your fund. How has real estate investing impacted your life overall so far? You know, I, in the very beginning, my gut response to that question is, you know, it creates freedom, <laughs> but what we all want, right? We all want financial freedom. We want even beyond that, we want to have to control our own destiny, I think, is what we, investors or entrepreneurs are intrigued by or drawn to. But uh, what's crazy, and I'm not saying this, I'm not free. It's just I've never worked harder in my life, right? <laughs> in terms of that, but I want to, I want to, and it is, I choose to do it. It really opened up my mind with choices. And it really helped me become, I believe, a great person. So and I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I'm humble, but I'm just saying like it, it helped build me up as a person where I embodied a lot of traits where I could take on a lot of responsibility. I can handle pressure. I can, you know, I can deliver when, when my back's against the wall, like I, I can count on myself. I can count on my own word. Like these things were internal things that I had to d- grow up with and deal with as a, person or as a man. And you know, that was kind of the evolution of why I wrote the book too. So those, some of those character traits, you know, without real estate, I was uh, in a tough spot doing some nefarious things in Vegas, you know, like just being <laughs> totally out there, just enjoying whatever it is that you can get into trouble with. So I, it was a great channel for me to, to put a lot of the energy that I had and I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And so if there is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? Looking back, I uh, <laughs> I would I wouldn't have done house flipping at all. But <laughs> that was a, a tough blow, you know, taking those hits. But other than that, I probably would have learned more about the strategy behind it. I, I would like I did it was late to the game understanding how fundraising worked, how some of the more traditional uh, channels of of real estate over time ha- have evolved. So what I mean by that is. How do you build a fund or have a partnership? You know, and then really understanding the tax consequences behind it. How, how does real estate tax law work? For me, that was a game changer when I started to understand that and I could present to sellers, guys that wanted to sell their asset where they were management intensive. You know, that's what's it's a blessing and a curse with mobile home parks and storage, you know, where you it's they're not big enough to hire a really good third party manager. So a lot of people have to self-manage unless you have a you know three-story really good facility in an urban market. You know, a lot of times you have to self-manage. So these owners get tired of the business and they don't want to deal with the customers and their family doesn't want to deal with it. So when I started to understand tax law and and really, you know, it's surprising how many owners that have really good quality assets don't understand the impact of the, the tax implications when they sell. And they started to understand, well, you know, as you depreciate the asset down and you reduce your basis in the asset you know, because a lot of these guys have owned it for 30 years, mm-hmm. there's a large taxable gain. So if you've refinanced a few times and you've pulled money out, 
Just because at the closing table, you make a million dollars because you paid your loan off, but you sold it for $10 million, you have another $9 million or $8 million or $9 million in gain that you don't actually have showing up in the bank account. So these guys, believe it or not, you know, a lot of them were just bootstrapping their down-home like investors that built that business up, they didn't realize that. And they, once they get that tax bill, they're like, whoa, you know. Sticker shock. Yeah, it's a huge (laughs) shock. So, so what's been really advantageous is sharing, you know, either, you know, doing owner financing, that's been a great strategy over time where we could still add value and they can preserve their equity and get a return on that equity without, you know, where we pay an interest rate to them and they carry the loan and they don't have to take that huge capital gains tax hit or, you know, they've been actually reinvesting in the funds. So when they sell the asset, they're able to take, they either contribute their asset or they can contribute the asset into the fund and not pay taxes. They can defer it or reinvest back into the fund and get a lot of depreciation to offset the gain. So that was something different where they're basic concepts, but they can sound somewhat complicated if you don't understand the fundamentals. And that differentiated me a lot more than just someone saying, you know, just throwing a super high offer out there and saying, you know, we want to buy no matter what. It was a great differentiator that people should learn the fundamentals. And if there is one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing, what would that be? (laughs) Uh, I think from across the board, a limited partner, general partner, investing in general, I think that the great Warren Buffett quote is, you know, if you can't control your emotions, you can't control your money. Right. And that goes deep into the psychology of every person where if every deal I realized like the earnest money deposits fifty thousand dollars. And if we somehow lose that deposit, you know, that's someone's salary for the year. If I put things in those terms and I'm constantly worried about the money involved, then I'm going to be emotionally pulled in every direction. And and I'm not saying I'm not worried about the money. I mean, I have a healthy anxiety around being competitive. But I think at the end of the day, if you're an investor being committed to the game, you know, being committed that, okay, I'm willing to do the, I'm going to learn the best I can and I'm going to go out and take actions. I'm going to go try these things. And I got to actually, I got to be in there. I got to be playing the game and I can't, I have to realize these are numbers on a screen and, you know, I can't always equate, I'm going to get a house. I'm going to get a car from this. I'm going to get nice, a nice watch or, you know, those material possessions aren't the outcome of the game. The outcome is, compounding your wealth and having a substantial amount of capital that you can live off of and transfer generationally. It's freedom and it does a lot of things that all the people, why we want wealth. But I just think if people think they're in this for the short term or they're going to make some type of you know material, they're going to get a material asset, like some something on your dream board. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just playing the game and winning for the sake of understanding the fundamentals. That's more important than anything uh, materially on the on the back end of it. Fantastic, Jeremiah. And so for our listeners out there also who want to find out more about you, what you're doing, maybe grab a copy of your book. Where's the best place that can go? Yeah, yeah. So Finding Your Edge, it's Jeremiah Boucher. It's on Amazon, uh, How to Win at the Game of Commercial Real Estate. So it's uh, I'm going to do the audio book. I'm going to get it done. So it'll be out there soon. Most people want that. And then uh, my company's Patriot Holdings, patriotholdings.com. They can hop on there, schedule a call, ask any questions that they want. And then our storage brand is storeallpurpose.com. And that just gives people an idea of you know, how we run our business. And that's the operating arm of our storage company. Awesome. Thank you so much again for your time, Jeremiah. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Eileen. Have a good day. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. 
Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.